All right, everybody. Today, welcome um, a friend of mine, Walt Rakowitz. Walt, welcome to the podcast. John, great to be on. You know, Walt, we met, oh my gosh, it must be 10 years ago. I think it was through Colorado Uplift when Kent Hutchison, when he was still with us, invited me to come in and kind of do a Bible study with some of the board members at Uplift. And for anybody who is not familiar, and you can go to coloradouplift.org, one of the most amazing organizations that's working with our some of our most disadvantaged kids in the inner city, in public schools, raising their graduation rates from 50 percentile up into the high 90s. It's absolutely uh, made a difference here, hasn't it, uh, Walt, in just a generation of kids that we were about to lose here. Yep, absolutely. And it's even changed my life, too. And so, and, and, but Walt came into uh, Colorado Uplift because you were the CEO of Prologis, a public company. If I remember, Walt, you, you're as an organization, you have the, had the, at the time, the most square foot of warehouse space under roof of any country in uh, the U.S. Is that correct? Well, I'd say we've had, we have more square footage than anybody in the world, um, without question. So yes. more square footage than anybody in the world. So I want you guys to think about this because what we're going to talk about today is how to lead through crisis, how to lead through adversity from somebody who's done this in the past. Because imagine having a real estate company doing warehousing all over the world in 2008 hits. I want you guys to just think about where Walt was sitting in the CEO spot when this happened. And I know people that were part of his team how he, or Walt, how you led through that, how you showed up, how you tapped into your faith, your humanity, your humility, how just transparent and honest you were, how you made decisions in that period of time, allowed you guys not only to get through that, but to emerge from that actually stronger, in my opinion. And I got to tell you, that is a recipe, a model that is so needed right right now. And I, I also do believe in the future because you know what? This isn't the last adversity we're going to go through as leaders. We have a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs out here, Walt, listening in. But before we really dig into this, and also Walt wrote a book called Transfluence that you guys can find on Amazon and everywhere else. But Walt, could you bring us back a little bit so we can get to know you and just kind of a little bit about your journey up to that spot sitting at the helm of Prologis, you know, before the storm in 2008 hit? Yeah, I can. Um, It was a very, very interesting time for me. Um, So I had been working, uh, let's just start in in roughly 2006, 2007. I had been working for the company at that point for 13 or 14 years. And I had, you know, kind of risen throughout the ranks of the company from a regional vice president to chief financial officer, ultimately, and then president and chief operating officer. So basically, I was the number two person in the company. And at that point in time, the company had roughly $50 billion in assets, um, very large uh, Fortune 500 company. And um, it was really interesting, John. You know, I worked for a CEO who was the, you know, probably one of the most brilliant people that I knew. But you know, he had some real interesting tendencies. You know, he believed that he was always right, uh, paid very little attention to what others had to say. And um, those are very, very dangerous traits. You know, sometimes they lead to 
um, very little delegation, you know, a lack mm. of discipline. And frankly, sometimes twi he twisted the truth, um, withheld it from um, certain people in the organization at certain times. And it was really becoming a management nightmare for me. I did not enjoy working for him because of some of the narcissistic traits and the like that he had. And I believe he did that because, you know, he was very prideful in some respects and I think very fearful in other respects. And he let those things, you know, really get to him. And I talk a lot about that in my book. And I all, most important thing is I saw how it was challenging the culture of the organization and, and really leading the company down the wrong path. And so I went to the board of directors and I said, look, you know, I, I just can't be here anymore. I mean, it's been great building this company. Um, from really a startup company to one of the largest companies in the world. But, and at that point in time, just to put things into context, our shares, share price was about $75 a share. And it was the end of 2007. Mm. And I said, you know, look, I, I need to leave. And so by um, hey, qu question for you there, you know, Walt though, but leading up to that, and I'll, I'm just thinking of a lot of people out there that almost feel maybe like I have the golden handcuffs. I mean, you've been there for 13 years Yep. You'd risen all the way up to the top. Yep. Now you're in a place where like, you know what, the leadership culture that we have here doesn't allow me to do, you know, work in my strengths and really probably work with your people the way that you probably feel that they deserve and that they want. And yep. you're kind of, you're stuck in this confluence. And I, I find a lot of people that are kind of there. How did you make that decision to actually say, you know what, I am going to leave. I can find another option versus gutting it out, which... I think a lot of people almost feel like they, they need to do, and it's miserable. Yeah. I had massive golden handcuffs, massive. And to tell you that I didn't struggle with it would be a lie. Um, I did struggle with it because I knew I'd be walking away from a lot. And actually, I, was, uh, I, I think because of my transparency, I, and I had built up a lot of credibility at the board level, some of the members of the board understood why I wanted to leave. They saw similar tendencies in, in the CEO, I was actually able to negotiate a deal with them whereby I said, look, you know, I would stick around. I truly would be here, but it's not right for the two of us. And therefore it's not right for you board. And so I was able to negotiate some uh, to keep some of those handcuffs, which when I explained what happened to you in a moment, most of them went away anyway, but I felt, you know, kind of middle of the road better about it. But honestly, I walked away from a lot. But, you know, there is nothing, John, more important than working in a management team that you trust and ultimately really feeling good about your job. And if you don't feel good about it, you know, all the financial incentives in the world are just not worth it. And that's how I felt. That's true. But he and here's a takeaway that I really want people to hear. Uh, if you were listening to what Walt just said, you know, operating from a place, you know, when you're in a difficult position with some difficult people of not gossiping, not talking negative about people, unless you're talking to somebody who's either part of the problem that you're trying to solve or the solution, operating out of integrity, being transparent and being vulnerable in that difficult situation that, that set you up to have trusting relationships, not only with your team, but the board. And I think that is what you just modeled there is so important because I know that how you were showing up and who you were being at the time is what created the opportunity and open doors for you as things unfolded. Is that correct, Walt? That is correct. And um, so the next part of the story will make that apparent. So January, 2008, I left and um, 
by March, the stock had gone from $70 to $60. By June, it had fallen in half to 35. By um, August, it had fallen into the 20s. And by you know, September, it had fallen into the teens. And then by uh, the end of October, it had fallen to roughly $5 a share. And at that point in time, the stock was the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500 in 2008. Now, don't well, get that, that, yeah. that can I've worked at public companies. That can induce some pretty serious stress. Oh, my gosh. It was unbelievable. And by the way, I had left the company at this point in time, but I knew what the board was going through. I knew what the management team was going through. And by the way, you know, the other thing is the S&P 500 was down in 2008 by roughly 40%. So don't get me wrong. It was, everybody was having problems, but. Yeah, but our, they're down 40 and you guys are down like 95%. We're down 96 and percent. And <laughs> we had eventually fallen to $2 and 20 cents a share. And the board called me up in November of 2008 and said, you know what? You were right. You know, we've got the wrong CEO and he's not listening and um, we got problems and we'd like you to come back and run the company and turn it around. So when they made the, when when you first got that call, knowing what was going on in the economy, if people remember, that was probably one of the worst financial crises, all in the you know centered in the real estate market, which you guys are in. What was your first thought when you got that call, Walt? Scared to death. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, scared to death. Matter of fact, I my initial reaction to the lead director and the board who called was, I can't do that. And he said, Well, why is that? And I said, because, because why, why do I want to spend the next four years of my life turning around a company that's going bankrupt? I mean, it's just not, that's not going to be a lot of fun. But he said, well, well, you got to do it. He said, you built this company over a 14, 15 year period of time. You know, you got to come back and do this. And the management team is strongly endorsing you to do it. And um, we need you. And, you know, I talked to my wife. I knew it would take a Herculean effort, but I agreed to do it. I said, how long do I have? He said, 24 hours. <laughs> so, you know, but I agreed to do it because I had hired a lot of the people in the company. I mean, it was a global company. We're operating in 22 countries. And, you know, our people had just lost confidence in leadership. I could see it. And I knew that the company truly was um, on the verge of bankruptcy. And, and I struggled with it. But, you know, I tell you, I told him, yes, I would do it. And, um, Looking back on it, John, it's really interesting. Crucible moments are sometimes our best opportunities, even though we would never wish them on anybody, nor do we ever want to go through them, you know. But over the next four years of turning around the company, I learned the most that I've ever learned about leadership. And that's when leading with Transfluence really became alive to me. Now, that's also what you titled your book. What does the word Transfluence mean? So Transfluence it means transformational influence. Mm. Look, I think as a leader, you've got a lot to accomplish. You've got a lot of objectives. And, you know, in some respects, we're all focused on the goal, or if you will, the destination, which in my case, turn around the company, Walt. (laughs) That's the destination, right? But really, your most important objective is the influence you have on those you lead. And and Mm. so... It's more about the journey than it is the destination. And if you get the journey right, you'll get to the destination. I think it starts with an understanding that it's not about you. It's about the influence you have on others to accomplish great things. And if you come to work as a leader with that in mind, 
you will reach your goal. You will accomplish great things. It's all about making people better at what they do. And so that's why I coined the word transformational influence. It's about the transformational influence. That's what leadership is about that you have on other people. And it's interesting, John, we were, my team and I, when we first started writing this, we looked up the word transfluence and there is no word called, you know, named transfluence, but there is a word that's transfluent, interestingly enough. And it means Mm. something flowing through kind of like a water, like a stream would flow by you. And so what we say in the book is that transfluence is something actually quite similar because it needs to flow from the heart of a leader. And um, I really think that it it starts with building trust. Mm. The book is about building trust. And the first step in building trust is the recognition that it's not about you. It's about other people. What advice do you have? You know, you're walking into this culture. I can just imagine, right? The stock's gone from 75 down to two. You know, you're looking at the economy that you're operating in and it is filled with just massive uncertainty and ambiguity. Where do we turn? You're also walking into a culture where trust is very low. Yep. You know, when you walked into this situation, and, and I'm thinking of, you know, people out there right now that are thinking, you know what? Maybe one of our biggest problems is why we have so much conflict. We're not moving forward. We're not getting, I'm not helping my, you said, I love this, right? Make people better at what they do. Yeah. Where do we start in an organization to move that culture and rebuild trust if it's been eroded? So um, some steps I talk a lot about in my book. I, I actually think the first thing a leader needs to do is do just the opposite of what I said to you. I think I think ultimately a leader needs to look out of himself or herself, but the mm-hmm. first thing they need to do is look inward mm-hmm. and um, overcome their fears and their pride. I think fear and pride are the two greatest challenges that leaders have. And it unfortunately, it prevents them from looking outside themselves. They fear and pride are the two things that cause leader to think internally, think about themselves because they are fearful. But in, by the way, when I talk about pride, I'm talking about hubristic pride. I'm not talking about authentic pride. Because, you know, look, it's fine to have pride in your work. I get that. Or have pride in your children. But hubristic pride, you know, vanity, egotism, arrogance, narcissism, that's what kills corporate cultures. Um, you look at, you want to hear, you know, stories, look at FIFA, look at Volkswagen, look at GM, look at Prologis leading up to 2008 with the leader that we had who was a narcissist. And so at the end of the day, you got to get rid of, you got to deal with your fears, you got to deal with your pride. And if you can do that, it enables you to then look out your side of yourself towards others. And then are, I talk, are those things that you had to, when you looked in the mirror, that you said, hey, there's some things here I need to kind of overcome? Absolutely. I was fearful. I, 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 mine was a little bit less pride, and it was a lot more fear. Hmm. I told you, I, I was scared to death, and I'm not afraid to admit it. You know, I tell you, one of the most interesting articles that I've read was an article in HBR, Harvard Business Review, and they talked about, the article was called What CEOs Are Afraid Of. But they didn't just interview CEOs. They interviewed 116, I think it was, CEOs and other C-suite executives. And you know what was amazing? They asked them, what's your biggest fear? And you know what they found? You, you'd have thought that they'd have heard something like competition or their people or you know, perhaps their financial well-being, something like that. No. 
the number one fear was incompetence. CEOs talked about being wrong, you know, not having the right answer and how it undermined their relationships with other executives. The number two fear was underachievement. <laughs> it's a fear of not doing enough or a competitor doing more, which caused them to take bad risks. And the number three fear was appearing too vulnerable around their cohorts. A fear, you know, fear of not being important. Again, not having the right answers. I was that person. I said, okay, I'll take the job. Yes, I was the former number two person, but I have no idea how to turn this company around. I've never done this. I've never been in this position before. Yeah, I was fearful. And it causes you, you know, you go to work every day and you're worried. And man, that's the worst position you can be in if you want to begin to influence other people. So you got to deal with that. That's not, by the way, that's not to say it's a bad thing. It's a good thing, but you got to deal with it, right? And I talk a lot in the book about the antidote to fear is faith. I really believe that the antidote to fear is faith. Fear believes in a negative outcome in the future. And faith believes in a positive one. So if you can come to work with a deep amount of faith, and we as Christians think about that in terms of eternal faith, but there's a lot of other leaders that have faith in other things. But the main thing is you got to have a belief in a positive future. For me, it happens to be faith in a higher power. You know, he walks with me and really that allows me to kind of reckon with my fears, you know, and it also allows me to be more transparent, you know, because I don't really fear the consequences, man. I know where I'm going, but you know, I also, you know, it's a, I've written a secular book and it's a book that is geared towards leaders that are not necessarily leaders of faith. And, you know, I said, you know, most, it's interesting in the book, I say that HP Lovecraft, who wrote some uh, pretty interesting thrillers over time. Yes, he did. That, he said that the oldest and strongest emotion of a man is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. Mm. When I read that, I thought to myself, wow, then I can control my fear because the real question is, what do I project into the unknown? If I project positive into the unknown, I can actually control it. So for me, it's a matter of faith. For other people that are not people of faith, perhaps it's projecting something positive, but you got to get out of your own way. You got to put the fears aside and that allows you then to be much more open and transparent. You know, I talk in the book about transparency. You know, our transparent world demands it because it's transparent, you know? And so I think the expectations of leaders are greater today and they need to act more transparently than they have in the past. I also think that the world is full of false narratives and craves believability today. And so you've got to be a leader with a strong core of authentic values. Mm -hmm. And I can talk a little bit about what that means. And then the other thing I talk about in the book is I think it's critically important that leaders demonstrate purpose in what they do. You know, the world craves purpose and uh, meaning. And I think it's the leader's job and responsibility for that matter to provide that clarity and really, you know, provide clarity in terms of what their purpose is, um, not just in their, in their jobs, but what the purpose of the organization is all about. You know, what are we, what are we striving for every day? And I, I think that's critically important. So, so there's other things that I talk about other than just overcoming your fears and pride. 
So here's a question for you. I talked to a lot of CEOs from small companies to, you know, fortune 100 companies that are, that are believers. Yep. And you know, one of the things you sent me and it's one of my favorite verses comes from Proverbs three, five, and that uh, is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And then in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Yep. So when, when you're walking into a global company in the middle of this, what did you do or what advice would you give to other leaders out there that are actually, you know, walking into this uncertainty? Like I'm thinking of this, you walking into your team saying, guys, I've never been here before. I don't have the answers. Making a decision right now for me is not easy. I don't know what decision to make. I mean, that hits every single one of these three fears, incompetence, underachievement, and being too vulnerable. How did you bring that, you know, leaning not on your own understanding, but bringing, you know, partnering with the father as you led, rebuilt this company, had to make decisions, uh, you know, empower your team as you move forward? Well, first of all, let me just acknowledge the fact that um, we need crucible moments in our lives. And the, the reason is, in my case, it caused me to even become closer with the Lord than I ever was. Not that I wasn't prior to that, but, you know, let me tell you, when you're down on your knees every day praying that, <laughs> that you can, you know, turn around this company and that you can influence people and all those sorts of things, there's just so many things on your mind. And I would wake up, um, generally speaking, I woke up at between 4.30 and 5 every morning. And I spent, Today, I spend about a half an hour every morning in prayer, but back then it was not uncommon to spend more than an hour doing that and just becoming close, close to the Lord. And you mentioned trusting the Lord with all your heart, leaning on your understanding. You know, God asks us to trust him. And um, I believe that building trust is, as I mentioned earlier, is the most important thing in an organization. And actually, if you really want to build trust, you actually have to trust others, mm. you know, like God asks you to trust him. It's not about you. It's about influencing others. And actually, it starts with trusting them. And if you don't have the right team in place, and I actually found that I didn't have four of the top 10 people I had to let go of. That was hard. But I came to the realization that I actually couldn't trust them. And, you know, I needed to let them go and build a management team that I could trust um, over time. And so that was critically important to me. But the most important thing came to me in a conversation that I had with John Mack. And, um, and he's I, I the uh, CEO of Morgan Stanley, Morgan correct? Morgan Stanley, yeah. yeah. And I really want your listeners to understand this. I've written a book that is a secular book. And I've written that book because it's a book that I want to reach the masses over time. And I don't know if John was a believer or not, but he was certainly one of the more revered investment bankers in terms of his leadership in Wall, on Wall Street at the time. And by the way, if you look back in history, back to 2008, in the market size, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were also going bankrupt. <laughs> so, right. you know, there was a, you know, so he's going through this. And so I had an investment banker friend of mine said, do you want to talk to John Mack? You know, make, just call it mutual commiseration. And I got on the line with him and I said, John, what are you doing to turn around your company? You know, how are you treating people? And, and he said, Walt, I, I managed the company on the basis of the three H's. And I said, what in the heck is that? And he said, you know, throughout my career, I've learned 
that leaders that are humble, honest, and of course, in this day and age, a banker needs to have a sense of humor. Those three H's, if I just act that way, I can build an imminent amount of trust in my organization. And I thought to this, and, and for your listeners, your listeners will especially understand this. I went back home and I started reading the, the New Testament. And I start thinking, who is Jesus? And if you look at it, he was the most humble leader you ever meet. He was brutally honest. Wasn't the most humorous person, at least that not what is written. But you know what? I think what John was really trying to tell me is it's about humanness. Mm. Humor is about humanness. It's about making the connection with people, right? And putting yourself in their shoes. And if you read through Jesus's parables, he was the most human leader that you can ever imagine. And so I talk a lot in my book about the value of humility, honesty, and in, just to make it short, I call humanness heart. Mm. I, I think humility is sort of how a leader sees themselves. Humanness is kind of how they see other people. And really, honesty is the transaction or the action that connects the two. I draw them as three concentric circles, like rings, almost like the Olympic rings that connected to each other. I call them in the book, my 3H core. And I truly believe that leaders that are humble, leaders that are honest, and leaders that are human, that treat people with empathy and um, respect and um, empower them, listen to them, encourage them, lift them up. That's humanity. That's what heart is all about. Those leaders are leaders that build imminent amounts of trust in their organization. And interestingly enough, as a fellow believer, that's Jesus's message. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that, that that is Jesus's message in the workplace. And that's Jesus's message in our everyday lives. That's how I built trust, John. It's, it's really pretty simple. It just, it starts with the notion that it's not about you. It's about the influence you have on other people. Well, I love that, right? Humility, because you talked about this, right? It's not about, you know, that first thing you talked about is overcoming that fear and that pride that comes from, you know, more of a hubris, right? So, you know, some things to think about, right? And is that where you're at? Can you show up humble? Can you have integrity and honestly, honesty in everything that you do? Which is also areas of, you know, being vulnerable. Yes. Right? Hey, I don't know the answer or the realization for yourself that, hey, you know what? I don't have the right team. I'm sure those were very challenging decisions to make, especially with everybody established as you walked in. But I, knowing you, Walt, too, you also do it with heart because, you know, oftentimes, you know what? Leadership isn't always being nice, but it is being kind. And sometimes the kindest things we can do is actually just being honest with people because we care about them. We care about the organization, maybe not how they feel about us in the moment, but if we can do that with love for the right reasons, you know what, we can have much better outcomes with people. And I think that sometimes not sharing that can really do people a disservice. Like if you'd never made those moves on your core team, you probably wouldn't have had the results that you had. And I know those were hard decisions, weren't they? 
Well, they were really difficult. I could tell you numerous stories. Just so your listeners know, I mean, we had to lay off a third of our workforce. So this is not about being nice only. <laughs> it, it is about the way you treat people. You know, if you're going to lay off a third of your workforce like we did, it's not about not making the right business decision. That was the right business decision. It's really how you went about it, how we went about it. Yeah. Did we treat our people with dignity and respect, you know, in the process? And you talked a lot about the word vulnerability, and I, I do want to address that. I say, you know, when I speak to people about this word humility, I always talk about how Webster's, if you look in Webster's, you'll see some pretty difficult words like weak, unassertive, submissive. That's kind of how the world defines humility. And I think that's why humility is actually very hard for leaders to understand because they get behind their pride or they get behind their fears and, you know, they... They don't want to look like they're weak. They don't want to look like they're submissive. But, you know, real humility takes courage and confidence. Real humility is not about being weak, but it is about accepting that you have them, that you, we all have them, and being willing to admit them, you know. And I think when you admit them, interestingly enough, and when I say admit them, I'm talking about your weaknesses, your fears, your vulnerabilities, when you admit them, you defeat them because they're out in the open. And let me give you a great example of what happened to me. And I write about this in my book. So this was about two months into the process of me coming back, becoming CEO. And we're all sitting around. This is around Christmas time, um, 2008. We're sitting around a meeting. It's one o'clock in the morning with our finance people. And we are working, John, we're working dog, dog years. You I mean, are, yeah. You're burning the candle both ends big time, the, aren't you? You got it. We're going home at one, two in the morning. We're coming back at six and you know, I mean, it's crazy. And one finance director in the organization wasn't the CEO said, well, Walt, we kind of have a problem. And he said, uh, I think we're going to blow bond covenants to the tune of $6 billion in bond covenants. Um, and I said, I looked at him, I said, when? And he said, probably by next month, but certainly by next quarter. I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, that means that we're probably going to need to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And uh, because, you know, the creditors will be all over us. And so I turned white as a ghost. I said, you know, guys, do you mind if I just walk down the hallway and just catch a breath? And they said, no, Walt, that's fine. Go ahead. So I walk down the hall and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm about ready to faint. And I see in the distance, I see a chair next to a desk, uh, not my office, somebody else's office. And um, I beeline to this chair. I just, you know, I needed to sit down in this chair and I mm. don't make it. I don't make it. And my head, the corner of my head hits the corner of the desk. You, excuse you me, pass. You're so overwhelmed by everything that just piled in at this in the one in the morning, you just, passed out. I fainted. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't make it to the chair above my left eye. Thank God I didn't hit my eye, but anyway, um, hit the corner of the desk and it split it open. And I was knocked out for what turned out to be about 10 minutes. And I'm, you know, laying there on the carpet. I get up, I the pool of blood next to my head. And, um, uh, the first thing I think about is where in the hell am I? This is <laughs> crazy. It's dark outside. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I realized that, you know, I split my head, I had fainted and all these people are still waiting in the room for me. And so I run to the bathroom 
you know, I get the bleeding to stop, walk back in. And I said, okay, guys, let's talk about this bankruptcy thing. And my CFO, probably the only guy had the guts, looks at me and he goes, no, let's talk about that huge thing that you got in your head right now. <laughs> and you know what? I was completely busted. I looked at everybody in the room. I told them the story. And I said, you know what, guys? I have no idea how to solve this problem. I have none. And I said, you know what? I'm the CEO of the company and I'm completely open and vulnerable. I'm just telling you, I don't know what to do. And there was like silence for about five seconds, which seemed like 30 seconds. And um, somebody pipes up and they said, you know what, Walt? Give us a couple of weeks. Let us think about this. Let us figure it out. And you know what? They did. They came up with the answers, not me. Now, don't get me wrong. I helped them. They advised. They talked to me about it, asked me my thoughts, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is that as a leader, nine times out of 10, the people that work for you know a hell of a lot more than you do about, mm -hmm. about the situation. And quit acting like you know more than they do. Listen to them. Talk to them. Be vulnerable at times. The thing I found is that, and I'm not saying that every leader should be vulnerable at all times. That's not the case. But I am saying that it is a powerful leadership tool that used in the right time is actually quite accepted by people because they know what you're going through deep down inside. And you don't need to be the bold person that comes across as they know everything. You don't. And if you can empower them and lift them up, and every once in a while, let them realize that you, you are where they are. You're a team. I'm telling you, you'll come up with the right answers. You'll get through it. And you'll build credibility in the organization and trust, which is really what I desperately needed to do. And the, and the management team did too. And we did. That's how we got people to work hard. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. You know, there's a, two things that jump out to me. There is A when you have that level of vulnerability, because you could have brushed it aside, it shows that team right there that you actually trust them. You move that trust up and they can, they rise. I think people rise to that. The other thing though that you did, and I'd love your thoughts on this, when you are vulnerable at that level as the leader, you're giving other people permission to then also be vulnerable which does some really powerful things to the culture, how we get to know each other, how we work together, how we deal with conflict, just everything that allows a team to have such a strong foundation. Because if everybody feels like, hey, we have to cover up all of our internal thoughts all the time, because you know it's not okay to share some of our concerns and worry, you have a, a team that's not going to be operating at their best. But I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if you show vulnerability, people are willing to show it back. If you trust others, people trust you. You have to take the first step as a leader. And the worst thing that you can do is to really um, put yourself in a vacuum and not be open to people because if you do that, they're not going to, they're going to put themselves in a vacuum and you're going to create silos in the organization and people aren't going to communicate. The best thing you can do to facilitate communication is to communicate yourself and to be open and to be transparent with people. And if you do that, they're going to come back and be transparent with you. And by the way, if they're not, 
then you'll find out over time that, that they're probably not somebody that you need to play the game with. But the fact of the matter is that I truly believe that the large majority of people, if you treat them that way, they treat you that way in return. Mm, I love it. Now, uh, the book is Transfluence. People can find it on Amazon. Where else can they find it? How else can people connect with you, uh, Walt? God, great question. They, you should be able to ultimately find it at um, any major retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, your local bookstore, hopefully. But you, and you should be able to get a digital or hard, hard copy. They can reach me through, um, my website is waltrakowicz.com. I'll spell that for you. Uh, Walt is W-A-L-T, Rakowich is R-A-K-O-W-I-C-H, waltrakowich.com. I'm also a Twitter at, at Walt Rakowich and LinkedIn, Walter Rakowich. And, um, you know, we're blogging uh, pretty much on a weekly basis now, and we have a newsletter, and um, I, I will speak from time to time. But basically, those are the ways that you can get a hold of me. That's awesome. I would encourage people, you know, we can create a, a, I believe, and I think you're at the front end of this, a movement that changes how we lead. I, th- I think people deserve to be able to show up to work where they're treated as a human, right? That there's honesty in the workplace, that there's humility around them. I mean, you're, what you're describing is a culture and environment that I believe we all want to work in that many of us are not. And I love how you wrote the book and translated everything from your deep faith into a book that is accessible to anybody. I just wrote a book and and did the same thing because I just feel like, you know what, when you bring, you know, these kingdom principles in your relationship with Christ into everything that you do, you don't have to be constantly quoting scripture to people because you have to create a connection. You have to add value. You have to help them improve in their life so that they're attracted to you and who you are in what you're doing in the world. And it opens, I've found in my life, while it has opened up so many deep and meaningful conversations, but it started with connecting and helping first. That preceded some of the other more meaningful conversations. Yeah, you know, I, I think, John, that you know, our, our world, I believe, needs more authentic leadership. Um, I think there's a real void in trust today. If you look at politicians, people mm-hmm. don't trust them. Corporate America, what you makes you say that? Well, <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> I, can tell you, a, I won't go into that one. But, um, you know, corporate America, not really trusted. Um, police, obviously, these days. I mean, you know, but people and, you know, some of that is fueled through social media and the, the abundance of false narratives that are out there. And we have a more distributed workforce. People aren't coming to work every day and, and, and working next to each other. And, you know, I talk a lot in my book about how we have we live in a world of greater access to information, we more diversity in people and accelerating progress. I call it the three climates of change. And in some respects, you know, they create tremendous opportunities for productivity and widening our spectrum for growth and the like. But boy, I'll tell you, they also create tremendous challenges for leaders because we now live in a world of glass houses where everybody can see everything that we do. And I think there's elevated expectations out there in terms of what leadership is and and there's a lot of people that are failing that today, unfortunately. And I'd like to think it does kind of spur a bit of a movement that um, hopefully we can look back on and say, yeah, these things um, slowly but surely are changing. Well, you know, as we wrap up, 
you know, we're looking at the environment today, and I think there's a, because of what's happening in the economy, the world, the pandemic, and I know we're going to go through crisis in the future. I really think this is probably an evergreen type question, but what advice would you give to people out there right now that are leading a team, leading a company, leading a nonprofit, where this level of ambiguity and uncertainty is just higher than they've ever experienced? There's no easy answers. How would you kind of wrap this up and say, hey, what are a couple things that these folks can do or think about even today? Okay, I'll try to be brief, but because it, you know, that's a loaded question. Yeah, right? that's all. That that'd be a whole seminar. I, I yeah. realize that with that question, but but, but that's okay. I'll, let me give you some points. Yeah. Number one, I think we have to manage with a heart today. I think leaders need to ask and listen, perhaps even more than acting, and don't expect people to come to you because there's a. So in other words, empathy and flexibility, I think, matter a lot in this environment. There's a lot of people that are really, really struggling right now. And as a leader, you got to recognize that. I think it's also important that you don't necessarily micromanage in this, this environment. I mean, I think it's important to keep in touch, keep tabs with people, but I think you should be asking a lot more about, you know, how they're doing as opposed to what they're doing and why they're not, you know, reaching the things that you want them to reach. So it's about encouraging, lifting up, inspiring and giving credit. I think communication is critically important today. I think you've got to communicate over and over and over with a very simple and relevant message. And uh, I found that in terms of leading prologists, people don't always hear it the first time uh, whenever you say it. But let me tell you what I think the most critical thing is. And I heard this the other day from Ed Bastian, who's the CEO of Delta Airlines mm-hmm. um, on a call. He said, basically, adversity is your greatest opportunity. He said, this is a time as leaders that we were anointed for. This is a blessing, not a burden. Now, this is a man who has, whose revenues went down in one month, 95%, and they're still down 70% today, okay? And he said, what an honor and a privilege it is to be managing at a time like this. Now, you think about that. That is unbelievable. I think attitude matters. I think you got to embrace the moment. Quite frankly, I almost didn't go back to work at Prologis because I was scared. I was scared to death. But looking back on it, it was my greatest opportunity to really lead. And in some respects, to bring, you know, hope to what was a very hopeless situation in 2008. So, you know, I want your listeners to know not to let this crisis, these times get the best of them. Instead, they need to persevere. And in doing so, let their character shine. Attitude matters. So consider your crucible moment as an honor and a privilege to be leading. That's such a beautiful perspective. And I love that, right? You know, you're, you're there to bring hope. You know what? It's about shifting your reframing what's happening in the world to that this is an opportunity. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. I'm here to give hope. And I don't have to have all the answers and it's okay. Okay. And there is somebody that absolutely has all the answers and we know who that is. Mm-hmm. Have faith in that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing. 
for everybody out there, I, I have so much respect for Walt having known him for so long. I'd love to have you guys plug in waltrakowicz.com, which is R-A-K-O-W-I-C-H.com. Connect with Walt. This is a this is the kind of book that if you bought it for everybody on your team and you guys read this together and talked about each one of these areas that that Walt outlines in the book and you bring this up in conversation and just imagine sitting down with the team and just say, hey guys, where are we on just humanness? Are we dealing with everybody with a heart? You know, hey, when you're going to talk to your folks, are you talking about how they're doing as a person first? Like, you know, it reminds me, I was uh, talking with a CEO of a, a Fortune 50 company who I was uh, doing some coaching with, Walt. And I, one of their key people, and I said, well, how, you know, how is she doing? He, he told me all the stuff that, all the what, right? That's where he just, that's been their interactions. And I said, yeah, but how is she doing personally? Mm-hmm. He goes, well, I don't know. And he called me back the next day and goes, you know what? I reached out to her. And I didn't know this because she's such an amazing person, but her husband is immunocompromised. She has kids at home. She's an essential worker. She has to come into the office every day. She's totally freaked out that she's going to get her husband sick and, you know, maybe catch it herself or have to spend, you know, weeks away from the family quarantined. And I didn't realize how absolutely stressed out she was. And we had this amazing conversation and it was so impactful on him that he cleared as the CEO of this massive company, his entire next day, just to have an hour conversation with every single one of his key people and just talk about how they're doing, where they're at personally, not the work, not the task list, not the initiatives and the strategies and the projects. And and I got to tell you, I believe that that was the pivot point of how this group was able to go through and emerge from this stronger. And what you talk about what we talked about today, what you have in your book is exactly how do you do that as a leader? Because for a lot of people, this is not our habit. This is not what we've been taught. But the good news is, is that making changes to lead the way that you've described, Walt, is very accessible, but it's going to take some intentionality, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, you've just described this transfluence. Well, thank you all. This has been awesome. And, uh, you know, as th- this thing goes out and you're working with more people and, uh, and there's so many more questions I- I'd love to ask you, but we're going to have to definitely do a part two down the road, maybe a little update, uh, especially good. as you, you know, talk to, you know, I know you've been talking with people and, and maybe even come back on, share some of those stories of transfluence as you're out there just impacting lives. How's that sound? Sounds great, John. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you again, too. You too.